Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is November 22nd, 2023, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. Title of today's podcast is, I think I'll have a heart attack. Maybe not in a rural area. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Lauren Westifer. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, Bay State. She's the co-founder of Foamcast and a pulmonary embolism and implementation science researcher. Dr. Westerfer serves as the social media editor and a research methodology editor for Annals of Emergency Medicine. Welcome back to the SGM, Lauren. Ken, always glad to be here with you talking about the literature. Yeah, I look forward to these like little, little sessions that we have every three to four months because I don't get to see you that often, but I did have the pleasure of seeing you oh so briefly at ASEP this year in Philadelphia. I know it wasn't long enough. And next time I'll have to make sure that the family can tag along so they get to see you. Oh, I so want to see them. Anyways, um, can you give us a case for today's episode? Sure. 72-year-old man with a history of high blood pressure and diabetes calls emergency medical services for chest pressure and dyspnea that started about an hour ago. When EMS arrives, they find a patient who's sweaty, but normal bottle signs. They do a 12-lead EKG, and they see ST elevations. It leads 2, 3, and ABF with some reciprocal depressions and leads 1 and ABL. And so the EMS team, they begin transport to the nearest PCI-capable hospital. So we've covered the issue of heart attacks several times on the SGEM. These include looking at the heart score, troponin testing, and cardiovascular disease in women. One aspect we have not addressed is rural heart attacks. Current guidelines target a time between first medical contact, like EMS is on scene, and the stent or balloon deployment during PCI of 90 minutes or less. And if that time from first medical contact to PCI is anticipated to be greater than two hours, the guidelines recommend systemic thrombolysis rather than PCI. And for all our international listeners who don't like all the acronyms, PCI, we're using it as percutaneous coronary intervention, just for clarity. Now, I've published on this issue with a project that I called Barn Door to Needle Time. Yeah, we were looking at rural STEMIs, and we took the last hundred or so STEMIs from a couple of rural emergency departments, and the median door to ECG time, six minutes, door to physician time, eight minutes, and door to needle time, or in this case, barn door to needle time, was 27 minutes. And if you've ever seen that glaucoma flecken video about the rural farmer pain scale, you understand this. If a farmer comes in and says they have chest pain and the sun is warming the earth, call everybody because the poop is hitting the fan. Anyways, 58% of them of these patients in our study received thrombolytics within 30 minutes. And because of the the emphasis on time here, regional systems of care have been designed to rapidly recognize patients who have STEMIs the ST elevation myocardial infarctions, and then direct those patients to timely reperfusion. And a lot of hospitals don't provide the percutaneous coronary intervention, and that can prolong transportation times, and that disproportionately affects rural patients. And there are several distinct time intervals in the care of patients with these ST elevation MIs, and it's unclear which steps in the pre-intervention care of these patients or the pre 
reperfusion care that contribute to avoidable delays. What's the clinical question we're going to try to answer on today's podcast? Is there an association between in-hospital mortality and time between first medical contact and primary percutaneous coronary intervention in rural patients who present with a STEMI? And what's the reference? Stapira et al. delayed first medical contact to reperfusion time increases mortality in rural EMS patients with STEMI, Academic Emergency Medicine, November 2023. Oh, and because we're recording this in November, this must be a hot off the press episode. All right, let's run through the PCOT. What was the population of the cohort? Patients greater than or equal to 18 years of age who are transported to one of three tertiary care hospitals by rural EMS agency and received primary percutaneous coronary intervention or PCI for STEMI. Rural agency was defined by some U.S. census codes from 2014. And they obviously excluded patients less than 18 years of age, but they also excluded those who had pre-hospital cardiac arrests and those who were transferred between hospitals. What was the exposure? 90-minute first medical contact to PCI or percutaneous coronary intervention goal. And this was defined as the time between the time EMS recorded as EMS personnel arrived on scene and the time that the angioplasty or stent was deployed. And what did they compare it to? Greater than 90-minute first medical contact to that intervention. All right, let's run through their outcomes. What was their primary outcome? All-cause in-hospital mortality during that index hospitalization. So very objective. How about the secondary outcomes? Pre-hospital time intervals that were stratified by index hospitalization mortality. And what type of study was this? This is a retrospective cohort study from eight rural North Carolina EMS agencies between January 2016 and March 2020. Well, this is an SGEM hot off the press episode, and so it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Michael Supples. He's an assistant professor of emergency medicine and faculty within the Emergency Medical Service Fellowship at Wake Forest School of Medicine in North Carolina. He is double boarded in EMS and EM and focuses on pre-hospital research. Welcome to the SGEM, Michael. Thanks, Ken. Glad to be here. Well, I grew up on a farm and I've done my entire 27-year career in rural emergency departments. Are you rural? What got you so interested in this topic? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I, am, I am not rural. However, our EMS faculty here at Wake Forest serves more than a dozen counties in North Carolina as EMS medical directors. Many of those counties are rural. The patients served in those rural areas have disparate access to certain aspects of medical care compared to their urban counterparts and EMS is critical in bridging that gap. Our department at Wake Forest is a center for chest pain research, so it was natural for us as EMS physicians here to explore a pre-hospital chest pain topic, such as rural STEMI. Well, my bias is for rural, so I was so excited to see Academic Emergency Medicine publishing something on a rural topic, and that researchers like you are interested in discovering more information about rural populations, because you know, often we're just extrapolating from urban data. And there's a difference. There's an urban-rural divide. And so it's nice to see that you're doing research in this area. So thank you very much. Absolutely. About 20% of Americans uh, live in a rural setting, so they are a very different population. 
Yes. If you've spent any time rural, you know they are a bit different. I mean, look at me with my December beard happening in November. Oh, wait, this is a podcast. They can't see it. All right. So why don't you, Michael, give the conclusions from you and your co-authors that was in the abstract itself? Absolutely. Our conclusion was the death among rural patients with STEMI was four times more likely when they did not receive PCI within 90 minutes. <gasps> four times higher. Wow. It sounds like, ooh, people are dropping dead all over the place. Um, but we'll dig into that four times issue. Okay. But this is a personal issue of mine. Okay. So let's go through a quality checklist for observational studies there, Lauren. Uh, did the study address a clearly focused issue? It did. And the authors, like Michael and his co-authors, used an appropriate method to answer their question. They did for associations, yep. Do you think the cohort was recruited in an acceptable way? Yeah, they did mention that one of the four PCI centers did not agree to participate, but you can't force people to participate in research. And was the exposure accurately measured to minimize bias? Yep. And the outcome, was it accurately measured to minimize bias? Yeah, death is a pretty objective outcome that's generally pretty easy to measure if it occurs in hospital. Unless it occurs in the movie Princess Bride, and then people can be only mostly dead. <laughs> all right, the authors identified all important confounding factors. Not sure about this one, Ken. Yeah, that's always difficult in an uh, observational study to look for confounding factors. Um, was the follow-up of sub subjects complete enough? Yes, and how precise did you find the results? Not very precise. There were only 11 deaths or 3% in the entire cohort. And this is good. This is great clinically. But from a statistical point of view, it results in these wide 95% confidence intervals around that point estimate. Yeah, it's not, a, it's not a criticism of the methodology or the researchers themselves. I remember I've been doing research for 40 years and one of my mentors, uh, Andrew Worcester, said, Ken, if you want to ever make a disease rare, study it. Because as soon as you start trying to enroll patients with the outcome of interest or with the, uh, uh, the disease that you're interested in, all of a sudden, what seemed really common, you can't find anybody to have it. Anyways, do you believe the results, Lauren? Yes. And can the results be applied to maybe, let's say, your local population? Uh, unsure about this one. How big is Bay State? I've never been there. Like, is it a big urban center? It, it is pretty urban. We do get, we are the, the primary PCI center for a lot of different counties, some of which are rural. So we do get uh, some rural patients, although sometimes those go to outlying EDs and then are transferred in. for. But, but you do have buildings that are higher than three three stories? Yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah, see, so in a lot of rural Canadian areas where I, I work, they can't build any higher than three stories because the volunteer fire trucks, the ladders only go that high. And so it's a municipal bylaw that you can't have <laughs> buildings higher than the ladders of the truck. Anyways, um, that's the nuances that you need to understand, right? Do the results of these, of this study fit with other available evidence? Yes. Hey, and where'd the money come from? Grant from the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences of the National Institutes of Health. All right, that's the quality checklist. Let's go through the results. There was a total of 365 rural patients with STEMIs included in the study. The mean age was 63 years and 70% were male, not a surprise. 46% of patients smoked, 
69% had hypertension, 61% high cholesterol, and 29% had diabetes. So that paints a picture. You've got an older, middle-aged, predominantly male, geez, almost half of them smoked, a super majority had high blood pressure and high cholesterol. Yeah, this is a high-risk group. PCI was performed in under 90 minutes in 61% of the cohort and in under 120 minutes or two hours in almost 90% of the cohort. The overall in-hospital mortality, which we mentioned earlier, was 3% or 11 of those 365 patients. What was the key result, Lauren? Receiving PCI within 90 minutes was associated with less in-hospital mortality. Yeah, and so let's let's put some numbers on that. So the primary outcome, the all-cause in-hospital mortality during the indexed hospitalization, what were the actual numbers for those who got it in under 90 minutes and those who were longer than 90 minutes? So under 90 minutes, 1.4% uh, died versus 5.6% if they were treated greater than 90 minutes. And that was three people versus eight people. Yeah, so you have a difference of just five people. So you can understand why the confidence intervals are wide around the point estimate. It was statistically significant, you know, p-value 0.03. I would opine that it's clinically significant if you're one of those people that died. That's very clinically significant. Um, but that 95% confidence interval went down to almost 0% and up to 9% around that point estimate. And again, this is just the, this is this, the problem of having small numbers. Anything else you wanted to say about this? Meeting the 90-minute time goal yielded a 98.6% negative predicted value in the 95% confidence intervals around that was 96.1% to 99.7% just when they were looking at some other things. Yeah, and so we always have to be careful with negative predictive values because it is dependent on prevalence of disease. And we have talked about that already, that the prevalence was low, which is great from a clinical standpoint, from a clinician standpoint, from a patient standpoint. Great. Not a lot of people died. Um, but when you do negative predictive values, it is dependent on prevalence. Um, when you looked at it, 78 minutes from first medical contact to PCI time was the optimal cutoff point for rural STEMI patients. The area under the receiver operating curve, or the AUC, was 0.75 with a 95% confidence interval from 0.58 to 0.92. Yeah, so thanks for uh, converting that uh, previous statistic about 78 minutes as the optimal cutoff point because they quantified that using the area under the receiver operating curve. All right, for their secondary outcomes, they had a whole bunch of them, pre-hospital time intervals stratified by index hospitalization mortality. And I'll just put table three in the show notes for people to look at. Because I want to I want to talk nerdy. We have one of the authors of the study. And so, wow, that's always a privilege because we can dig into it and get more information. So I want to spend more time talking about nerdy points rather than talking about some of the secondary outcomes. And, and this was an observational study. So, of course, we can only make conclusions of associations. And we already mentioned the 11 deaths, which gives us this wide 95% confidence interval. So let's focus on five other points. So, Michael, are you ready to answer our nerdy questions? Absolutely. Fire away. <laughs> All right. The first one is about confounders. Uh, according to Table 1, the patients who experienced in-hospital mortality were older by about a decade, and more patients had key cardiovascular 
comorbidities, things like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, previous heart attacks, or bypass surgery. The confounder is a variable that it's associated with the primary exposure of interest and the disease outcome of interest. Can you discuss the decision to either adjust or not adjust for these potential confounders in your study? Well, Ken, this is a, a really great question. We would have loved to adjust for confounders, but the key here lies in our sample size. Most specifically, that only 11 patients experience index mortality, and index mortality being our outcome of interest. You're probably familiar with the uh, rule of thumb, the one in 10 rule, uh, which is commonly applied to regression analyses and states that one predictor variable can be investigated for every 10 events that occur. The risk of violating this rule is an overfit model. Uh, an overfit model can be problematic because it can lead to misleading inference, for example, incorrect regression coefficients and incorrect p-values. And it also reduces the generalizability outside of the data set that's being analyzed. Because we only had 11 events, we did not adjust for any other variables and only investigated the relationship of time with mortality. But this is an important limitation of the study. So I think that really helps listeners understand if they're sort of casual interpreters of the literature or doing critical appraisal, go, hey, you know, you can adjust for confounders. Why didn't they adjust for confounders? And you explain that really well. So I will regress from that comment. <laughs> yeah, the next is about causal inference, which is something I look at in every paper that is a sort of observational or retrospective. And it seems like the bulk of the first medical contact time to PCI time between those who lived and those who died in hospital was the door to PCI time. And this differed by 30 minutes between groups, whereas most of the other points like dispatch time, response time, seeing time only differed by median of like zero to one minutes. Activation time was longer in the group that died, but by a shorter length of time. And to me, you know, I wonder if this suggests there's something about the presentation of the patient or delivery of in-hospital care that's different or more complicated. What are your thoughts on this and the role of pre-hospital transport? This is another great question. Uh, door to PCI time was the interval that differed the most between patients with and without index mortality. So it certainly seems like there is something going on with patient presentation or in hospital care. Only three of the 11 patients who died in our study had a documented delay in PCI, for example, a need for intubation, cardiac arrest. So that's only a partial explanation. We also found that delays in time to ECG acquisition, time to PCI center activation, and scene time were associated with downstream delays in door-to-PCI time once the patient arrived at the PCI center. This suggests that there is certainly a role for of pre-hospital time intervals on influencing door-to-PCI time as well. Early activation time may be particularly important in decreasing door-to-PCI time and improving mortality. Putting my EMS physician hat on, EMS activation of the cath lab is a particular area where emergency physicians and cardiologists can improve the care for these patients by trusting their EMS colleagues and mobilizing resources before the patient arrives to the hospital. They have EMS hats, and where can I get one? I'll send you one, Ken. I'm all about the swag. Give me a free t-shirt and I'm your best friend forever, it seems. <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah, I look forward to seeing that hat. Um, let's get back to some adjusting because we talked about uh, your decision, your correct decision not to adjust for potential confounders. But I want to talk about clustering. Clusters are common in medicine and EMS agencies that treat patients, the hospitals to which patients present, or even treating clinicians. The outcome of interest may vary less within the cluster than it does in the entire data set. Can you tell us more about your 
appropriate decision to adjust for clusters. Absolutely. Cluster analyses are routine in EMS research that involve multiple agencies. EMS agencies commonly have their own protocols, differing training frequency, training intensity, and other difficult to quantify factors that may have subtle effects on the outcome of a patient that one agency cares for when compared to a neighboring agency. A cluster analysis helps us account for those differences. Yeah, I've noticed that as someone who works in a variety of small rural hospitals, and some of those hospitals, because they cover a large geographic area, they may have multiple EMS agencies that feed in to that hospital. And so there's multiple sites where I have maybe three agencies, three EMS agencies that deliver patients and bring patients and treat patients. And there's a culture, there's a difference. You can, you can notice it, you know, oh, oh, that must be that crew, you know, because they're coming from that area. And like you said, different agencies have different training protocols, but I think it there is a different culture that you experience, even at different hospitals. We're all treating the same patients, usually, you know, very, very similar patients, but there's a different culture at these different hospitals. So I was really interested on your clustering and your um, appropriate adjustment for clusters. Absolutely. Clustering, uh, I would say, is, is generally the default in EMS research when we have more than one agency. I, I wish it were the default in more than just EMS research as a reviewer. One other uh, topic to think about here, looking at any study, is generalizability. In this study, the median response time was nine minutes, the median transport time was 27 minutes, and the median total EMS time was 41 minutes. So these patients, were they were definitely rural patients, um, but access to PCI center was relatively timely, so they weren't necessarily remote rural locations. And uh, so the question here is, do you think that this could impact results looking at the broader sort of scene of rural and urban areas? This is an interesting question, um, and I'll draw attention to a, um, a paper published last year by our group. In that paper, we used a national data set of over 400,000 EMS encounters in the U.S. of patients with a cardiac complaint. That paper was published by Dr. Ashburn uh, in the American uh, Journal of Emergency Medicine. Dr. Ashburn is a member of our team and a co-author on the paper that we're currently discussing. In that paper, we found that a, there was a median transport time of 27 minutes and a median total EMS time of 55 minutes for rural patients. So our data in this study is actually fairly similar to that which we saw nationwide. We know that delays in PCI among patients with STEMI are associated with increased risk of mortality. So the inclusion of patients with even longer times to PCI, for example, remote rural patients would likely increase the observed number of deaths. I would then hypothesize that that could increase the observed difference in the time intervals between those with and without index death. Yeah, I think it's really important to highlight the difference between rural areas and remote areas, where remote areas are pretty much always rural. Um, not all rural areas are remote. And there are a number of places where I work where, again, the the time to get PCI or the transport time would be in this range of under 30 minutes. Whereas other places in Northern Ontario, you know, one place I work by ground, it's five hours by ground. But you know that even if you get a helicopter that takes time as well for the, the helicopter to be dispatched, land and get there. The transport time might be shorter, but the overall time is certainly not 30 minutes, even though if it's five hours by ground. So there is a difference between rural and remote. I'm glad we made that distinction. 
in those areas, you might be looking more at the time from first medical contact to thrombolytics rather than time to PCI. Yeah, and uh, that's uh, places where we still do thrombolysis. Uh, the fifth and final point that we wanted to talk about from a nerdy perspective was selection bias. This study included patients who had STEMIs and received PCI, so that's the cohort. But there may be circumstances in which the patient has an occlusive myocardial infarction, including STEMIs, but does not receive PCI. Not every person who has a STEMI automatically gets a PCI. And sometimes, you know, the reason they didn't is because the patient died. So that's a possibility for immortal time bias. How do you think that could have impacted your results? Another great question. Data acquisition for epidemiologic EMS research is unfortunately fairly complicated. We usually need data from both the EMS medical record and a hospital medical record, and obtaining and concatenating that data can be difficult. Registries can be helpful for some pathologies, such as STEMI, as we used in this study, but there are certainly limitations from using registry data, and selection bias can be one of them. There certainly may have been patients who were eligible for PCI and did not get it for one reason or another. For example, they died before PCI or erroneously didn't go to PCI. It's possible that if longer transport times are associated with higher mortality for occlusive MI patients more generally, it could influence our results. But I think it would drive the observed effect of time delays on mortality towards more significance. Regarding our current study, our key independent variable was time to PCI. And as such, all patients must have received PCI to qualify. Yeah, that was the internal validity of the study to, you had to get a piece, you had to have a STEMI and you had to get a PCI to be mm -hmm. in the study. So um, just recognizing that as the cohort and a potential limitation is important. Listen, is there anything else you'd like to say about your study or this topic area? This is, this is one of the great parts about the SGM hop thing. We can actually open it up a bit and we have one of these researchers, we have someone who's passionate about this area. This is your platform talk to us. I appreciate it, Ken. You know, I think uh, in, a, in a general way, um, with one-fifth of Americans, as I already mentioned, living in a rural setting, disparities in their access to medical care is an important population health topic. EMS is a critical bridge to this gap that we hope to continue learning how to leverage. Specifically on the topic of rural patients experiencing STEMI, there are a number of levers uh, that we believe we can pull to Im impact their care in a positive way. Uh, one of those that's currently under investigation at our institution is the pre-hospital use of thrombolytics for patients who are unlikely to meet first medical contact to PCI time goal. That study's ongoing, and hopefully we can discuss it in, uh, in a couple of years. Well, why don't you just submit it to Academic Emergency Medicine, and we will look at picking it for one of these hot-off-the-press episodes. I really like that you brought up the concept of health equity. This is a big problem uh, in many areas, and I'm an advocate for rural health. And uh, one of the things I'm often seen saying on the site formerly known as Twitter is that people should receive medical care based upon their need and not necessarily on their postal code. And for you, and I'll translate this for Lauren as well, a postal code is your zip code. And so uh, I think people should have appropriate and timely access to care, and that care should be based more upon their need and less upon where their address is. And I think EMS can play a huge role in that by having a robust system to meet the needs of rural patients with professionals out there that can give them potentially life-saving care. 
I absolutely agree. Uh, as an EMS physician, I think EMS is the frontier of uh, of improving you know, emergency care in general, but uh, especially in those uh, areas where we have disparate access to, to hospitals and specialized services. I completely agree, Ken. Well, we're all on team patient. All right, so it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. Timely care of patients with occlusive myocardial infarction is imperative in geographic and urban rural disparities likely exist. However, there are likely several patient level confounders that also influence this time to PCI. How about an SGM bottom line, Lauren? Higher in-hospital mortality for rural STEMI patients is associated with longer time from first medical contact to percutaneous coronary intervention. And can you resolve the case you presented? EMS activates the local STEMI pathway immediately, and the patient is given aspirin, nitroglycerin, and transported to the nearest PCI-capable hospital. And how do you think you can take this study and apply it clinically, Lauren? Decreasing unnecessary delays in the pre-hospital and emergency department settings are critical in the care of patients with occlusive myocardial infarction, which I think is another point here because y'all just studied STEMI patients and occlusive myocardial infarction encompasses a broader breadth of patients who have maybe more subtle ECG findings, but likely will benefit from the same reperfusion. And so there's the likely potential in rural settings to optimize care to meet recommended benchmarks or provide alternative therapy when necessary, like thrombolysis, um, if you can't get to a PCI center within those benchmark times. And so what would you tell the patient? You're having a heart attack. We are bypassing the closest hospital and transporting you to the nearest hospital that will be able to relieve the blockage in your heart. Things are going to move very quickly, but we're doing so to take the best care of you. Okay, it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner. Last week's winner was Amanda Dos Santos. She knew that a wet read refers to when plain films were developed in liquid solutions. The preliminary wet read could sometimes be done while the film was hanging and still drying. All right, Lauren, what's the question this week? 97% of the land in the U.S. is considered rural. What percent of the American population live on that rural land? Okay, so uh, there are some hints, I think, that Michael provided. So you, you need to listen to the episode. But I think many people could get this. But if they do get this correct answer, they will win a cool skeptical prize. But you have to be first. Now it's your turn, S. Jemmers. What do you think of this study on rural STEMI patients? X your comments using S- hashtag SGEMHOP. What questions do you have for Michael and his team? Ask them on the SGEM blog. And the best social media feedback will be published in AEM. Well, thanks, Lauren. Thank you. Always my pleasure. And thank you, Michael. Thanks, Ken and Lauren. It was great to join you both. And now I get the guest to read the SGEM tagline, and I ask them to do it in their best native accent. So um, I'm not sure if you have a North Carolina accent, but I'm sure you have an American accent. I, uh, I should have practiced this. Uh, I, I don't know that I'm a, uh, I'm an accent person. You know, my, my dad was from New York. My mom was from Florida. So <laughs> I'm accentless. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. Hey,